0: welcome to the upland nation podcast i'm scott linden your host glad you could join me you know uh as an old teacher from way back i i I apologize in advance for helping you learn so much but you will definitely learn something and it will be of great value to you in this edition of the show bob ferris joins us uh you recognize the name one of the most popular guests at the upland nation podcast Here to bestow upon us some of the wisdom he's gathered over decades and decades with versatile hunting dogs from training to testing to writing about them in his own book to judging NAVDA tests for over 20 years. The guy's a chucker hunter, still a waterfowler. Boy, have we got a lot of questions for him. Looking forward to that aspect of the show as well as some of the other things we're going to cover, including a new feature. We're going to talk to industry insiders about stuff that matters to you and me. In this case, Andy McCormick from Legacy Sports. They're a gigantic shotgun and well, all types of guns importer. And you know them because they bring in the pointer shotguns that I talk about so much on the program. He'll give us some insights that you're not going to get from some schlub at the uh, you know the gun store, for example. So stick around for that. The Upland Nation Glossary covers the letter Q. And we'll start off the podcast in just a moment with a public access tip. A state you may have, you know, kind of written off, but really has some potential. And I'm going back there. So take my word for it, it's worth the drive. Well, how's your training season going? If you got one, Uh, conditioning, you know, it's starting to get a little warm. So we're starting to work a little bit earlier in the morning, trying to get Flick in shape now for. You know, 18 to 30 mile days on the Chucker Hills. Uh, But mainly we're working on this whole steadiness thing and um, and a few related aspects of it. We hit a plateau last uh, last, uh, Monday, I think it was. Uh, Flick uh, started kind of phoning it in on his steadiness. He would rode in just a little bit when he didn't think I was watching on those birds. You know, hit the scent cone side eye me and then kind of take a few more steps and get a little closer to the bird. And so we're back a few, um, a few degrees and working on that. We're making progress again, but the other thing I'm working on right now is force fetching and not, not the concept behind it, but the, the, the grand finale when he gives up that bird, especially a bird that's still alive, Yeah, I thought he was pretty good at all that. But, uh, you know, the transition from a dead bird to a wing-clipped bird or a bird that's just not quite given up the ghost yet, he thinks it's his. So I'm working through that in a couple different ways. If anybody has any suggestions, if you've learned that the hard way or the easy way, hey, talk to me on the Facebook pages because I'm trying a little bit of everything, trying to be a little creative in that. But um, so far, so good, at least the solution part. So far, so good. All right. We're made possible thanks to the contributions of Roughland Performance Kennels, Sage and Breaker Gun Care products. Got a great Father's Day sale. Check them out. Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, Ringneck Nation of Huron, South Dakota, and my project, Fur. Feathersfriends.com. Funny name, great cause. Hope you'll learn more about it. Some people will say Iowa's best bird hunting days are behind it i'll argue differently i was there a couple years back made a couple episodes of wing shooting usa had a great time was invited back and will be there again this fall so see you on the road and um so far so good i'm being told that the pheasant and bobwhite populations are both on the rise still and there's lots of public access. That state has, well, it's not the best access program in the world, but they're getting better by the year. They call it Habitat Access Program, H-A-P. And there are, of course, some other initiatives out there, plus a lot of publicly owned ground of one sort or another. You might want to check out the wildlife management areas south and west of Atumwa. Look for kind of the, the folds in the land there and western iowa in general has pheasant hunting opportunities that you can discover on the online map at their wildlife agency website as i said sageandbreaker.com has a significant and one of the very rare sales going on right now father's day sale you don't have to be a father to take advantage of savings of Over 50 bucks on some products. So the gun cleaning combo is the one I'm looking at. It's all in one. You roll it up, it's got everything in it. Tools, chemicals, everything to keep your shotguns in shape. Save 57 bucks on that gun cleaning combo in the Father's Day sale at sageandbreaker.com. And at Pointer Shotguns, They call their product a work of art at a price. That's a thing of beauty, and I can't agree more. I've been using them a lot on some videos, taking them to the range, doing some more fun things with them that you'll see in some upcoming videos. The Pointer Shotguns at LegacySports.com are just that. Fit and finish are strong and good, and the price, well, it can't be beat. Great value, great fit. Great finish, pointer shotguns. I'm loving those Acreus with their Saracote finishes. If you're watching any of the videos, you've seen some of that. Bronze is the color of choice for me, and it seems to be making me a better shooter too. So uh, check them all out. LegacySports.com/slash-pointer. I love talking with this guy, uh, no matter what the subject matter, but in particular about the stuff that you and you and you and me like to talk about bird dogs, bird hunting. Author, uh, hunt test judge, breeder, trainer, well known in the poodle pointer world. In fact, one of the Well, I'll just be honest with you. One of the bigger names in poodle pointers these days, Uh, I'm lucky enough to have met Bodo Winterhelt and spent a day with him once. But uh, Bob Ferris belongs right up there in the same stratosphere with Bodo and a few other people. Bob Ferris is also the author of a book, Breeding and Training Versatile Hunting Dogs for Hunting and Tests. You can get it at Amazon.com. I remember when you were first getting started on that. Bob Ferris, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast.
1: Thanks. Seems like a long time ago, but uh, I think it was only a couple of years ago that we we did a podcast together.
0: Yeah, it was a v- very beginning of my podcast and uh, about publication date for your book. And uh, and uh, I guess propitiously about publication date of the first paperback edition of my book, which comes out any day now, so um here we are, and the first question is always the most important uh how was your hunting season?
1: I gotta confess I had a piss poor hunting season i i had i I suffered from back problems about the last five years, and it just progressively progressively got worse to where. I knew I couldn't really walk much over a block oh, without wow. pain. But I had a back fusion about six weeks ago and man I feel like dancing a jig. I have absolutely no pain. I'm completely pain free and I'm I told the doctor the doctor's a chucker hunter that did my surgery. He's he has two Griffons, and when he stepped out of the room I clicked on his little desk computer and I called up my website and I clicked on a dog named Cedarwood's final straw and when he came in I said you see that picture of that dog that's why we're doing this surgery that's the most tremendous dog I've ever seen in my life and I want to hunt chuckers with him and he just laughed and said well you got you got something to go for buddy anyway it was a tough couple of weeks the first two and then after that I I got up today I felt like I could do anything I wanted to do and which I won't, I'm going to be a good boy and protect (laughs) it back because you know, when you have to cancel a hunting season, you have people, I went to North Dakota with my son and Gary Maxwell and you know, we had a great time, but I was the designated blocker and Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's a disgrace. That's like being a designated driver. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just,
0: Nobody so, ever asked me that.
1: <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm really feeling good. I'm really feeling good. And uh, we got a new place over in Oregon. We're going to run over and spend some time. And I told Le I said, if there's enough snow gone, I said, I'm going to hike into Ice Lake and, and out one day. And I'm going to just start doing the things I love to do
0: well you know i'm i'm happy for you for many reasons the first is you don't hear a lot of back fusion stories that go right so good on you and i'm grateful for it maybe it's because uh, your surgeon was a a bird hunter as well whatever it is i'm glad for you and and especially the fact that you're going to you're going to use that as a gift and and that is something whether you know there are a lot of reasons uh, we can put off doing this hunting thing uh, it's a lot of work we all know that but there are better reasons to keep trying to do it we argue all the time and I think you played a little football as well I'm, I'm suffering from all the football injuries but we won't talk about that old timer stuff we'll talk about the good stuff what, what are you looking forward to doing most this upcoming season?
1: just now you know I don't I don't really care if I ever kill another bird I you, yeah. you, there's enough money to get me to kill another elk I've killed god I don't know how many elk in my life and I I, I, I feel very guilty in a lot of ways because you know they're such a magnificent animal and think you, you you end up shooting them for your ego I mean I've got a whole barn full of big elk racks and but and I I kind of starting to feel that way about birds. I haven't killed a duck in five years.
2: Uh-huh. But
1: I go I go a lot because I go with my grandkids and I just call ducks for them and I tease them if they miss and you know we have a great time. But I don't I don't need to eat another duck and I just and I'm starting to get that way a little bit about upland birds. And I've shot plenty. I mean I've 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 exceeded God's quota for any human. I know that so i but I still like to go, so you know, to answer your question, I plan on just running my dogs on wild birds and maybe taking two birds just enough to eat you know that that evening or so. Yeah. And I don't just yeah. don't need to fill the freezer like I used to do. Uh, but i plan on I plan on chasing birds, and i I hope we have some kind of steelhead run. that's my <laughs> other other passion.
0: Well, I, so do I, I've got a couple dates later in the summer for summer steelhead on the Deschutes. So I'll let, I'll let you know how we do up there. Uh, You know, but you, you hit on something and, and it's, it's a, it's a recurring motif. And I think we, at about age 50, we get to this point Uh, I've read before, of course, that you can't be wise until you're at least 50 years old. And I believe that I'm still working on it by the way, but um, but at some point we decide that um there's more to this hunting thing than just going out and filling up a vest with dead things what is it for you what do you find most uh most gratifying besides calling ducks for your grandkids when you're out there with with a dog or two and nobody but yourself what are you getting out of that
1: i if if this is going to sound weird i think I think some of the best memories I have of hunting are when I crippled a bird and watched a dog make this unbelievable retrieve and said, I mean, it's, it's probably not a fair way to look at, at, hunting, but just to know that that dog was capable of tracking that bird a half mile and finally, finally getting it pinned down. Cause it was all it had was a broken wing or watching you know, i have watched Tucker swim across the snakes, Snake River, I don't know how many times, chasing cripples.
2: Wow. 300
1: yards, clear to the other side, and just turn around and come back and never put the bird down and bring it to me alive. And, I, you know, you just look at that, and you know, how blessed I am to have kept a dog capable of doing this, capable of showing me, you know, the ultimate retrieve. So I, I, think, I think watching dogs make... Just exceptional retrieves is you know I love watching a dog go on point and whatnot, but I think it's that that retrieve and some of it is probably I'm, I'm a lot different than most guys that have pointing dogs. It is that I spent quite a few years with retrievers, yeah. field trial and retrievers, and so you know I, I never hunted those dogs other than for waterfowl, and I, you know it's just neat to see a. A dog that's uh, supposed to be a versatile and an all around dog capable of doing the water work that a Labrador can do, and, and sometimes better.
0: Well, you know, I, I can't agree more, and you, you you made the hair stand up on the back of my neck when you talked about that uh, snake river uh, retrieve, if you want to call it that. He the, the bird was on the dry land on the other side, which is even a big, that's, that's a versatile champion kind of performance, but um, well, go ahead.
1: You know, you know, you know what's, you know what's most dogs would do if they got that far away from you and they landed on land, even if they got the bird, they'd look back across the water and go, Oh man, I'm not gonna," and, and now you've lost your dog. Yeah. Because he's on the other side of a river and it's going to take you an hour to get over there, unless you're in a boat. And but I'll tell you an interesting thing, Paul Davis. I sold Paul Davis a poodle pointer here a few years ago, and he's an extremely avid waterfowler. And he had a total knee, and he, he, he wanted to start pheasant hunting again. So he came to me and said, what do you think? And so he bought this dog. He calls him Cash. Every now and then people see Paul on Facebook, you know, showing some that Cash has done. But I went, I went diver hunting with him. I, you know, I could, I could sit in a, sit in the, in a boat blind, you know, and we were on the Snake River, and we crippled, we crippled a golden eye it hit the water and cash took off after it and he and Paul looked at me and he said, watch this. He said, he's going to, he's going to, that duck's going to dive and sure as hell the duck dove. And he said, cash is going to go down the river 20 yards as hard as he can swim, which he did. And he said, now he's going to start swimming in circles and he did and he says, he's going to find that duck underwater with his feet. Oh my God. And a, This is true. And all of a sudden boom, down he goes. And he's swimming underwater, and he retrieves that duck. And he and Paul loves to hunt divers, and he said, you know, he figured this out on his own. From ducks diving, he said he probably felt one one time with his feet, and I said, you know, that's kind of interesting, because I used to throw stuff in my swimming pool and let it sink, and then send Tucker, and Tuck, Tucker could go down about six feet, and they can see, see underwater, but he could swim underwater and retrieve stuff off the bottom of my pool, so... It's, it's not they can't do it they just they just need to figure out how and when but uh, I don't know I'd just being able to see things like that go on it goes it, it, you know I've been doing poodle pointers for 40 years and I've I focused so hard on the on the retrieving in water in January that uh, it just kind of makes my heart pitter patter to, to, to see things that are you know, above the bar, way above the bar, and uh, so that's that's my two cents of, of, of uh, what what I enjoyed last year hunting was was hunting with Paul.
0: Well, I I get it, and and I asked a question on on social media a few weeks back about uh, how you how does your dog express loyalty to you? And there was a, a lot of great answers. In fact, there were a lot of answers. Period, but you know if you think about you break the 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 act of of what the dog does in a hunt into several pieces and and the 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 devotion the loyalty the skill and the those three things are manifested more in the retrieve than they actually are in the point and the the, the stuff leading up to the point that's all instinct and it's really about me 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 dog is looking yeah. for a bird so that they can swallow it after yeah, the exactly. shot it's all about serving or working with, however you define it, working with the human, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's the cooperation and sharing.
0: That is you know, it, incredible.
1: Yeah. No, I've, you know, when I first got my Boodle pointers, I got them through Bodo Winter yeah. in 19, 1988. And there was two, two dogs bred up in Calgary and they were the only prize one, uh, poodle po- utility, poodle pointers in all of North America. And, uh, Bodo told me, he said, if you, if you want to breed poodle pointers, you better, you better get a pup out of this litter. So I, I got two. <laughs> and one of them turned out to be a tremendous water dog, just, and the other one was not. And I can go back and look, and track through all of the breedings that I've done and I go back to this one dog Haber Hills Alita and uh, she was she loved the water She and she retrieved dogs you know on the opposite or dogs <laughs> on the opposite bank of the uh, Snake River a couple of times and I just went I'm going to figure out how to how to create a pool pointer that can do the same water work as a lab in the Chesapeake because they you know they really couldn't and they really can't but if you focus on on that and I got to reading like Bob Worley's uh, wing and shot and making of Snakefoot and him talking about the uh, you know how important the females are and uh, just certain certain females just shine out and I can't remember what he called them but anyway I just focused on her and I I can go back and I can track all the way Tucker who is the most fabulous water dog I've ever seen and I go right back to Alita wow. and uh, I did a I did a breeding about a year ago Bob West who is he writes for Gundog and sure. he's he, the president of NAVDA he called me one and he had a friend here in Boise that he wanted to get the guy a hunting dog and he said I think a poodle pointer would be great for him and he he said, what do you got? And I said, well, I just bred this little female. And and uh, he said, can you, can you send me the, the pedigree? I'd like to look at it. So I did. And, and then I wrote out on it. I said, this pedigree has Tucker on the pedigree five times. And, oh. and Bob knew who Tucker, he knew who Tucker was because he came out here and he'd, he'd seen Tucker hunt. And, he, and so I said, Tucker's in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generations. And I said, in this pedigree, there every dog on this pedigree is a NAVDA natural ability prize one. There's also 21 prize one utility dogs and four versatile champions. And he, he's like, I can't believe that. He said, I couldn't, he said, you're, 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 you're talking about like what a short hair pedigree would be. And I said, well, after all these years and keeping dogs and whatnot, this, so I, I sent him a breed mate that showed this and I said, what's amazing is Tucker's given 58 cor, and the, the sire is given, you know, I don't know, 60, but he's given, Tucker's given it five times. His DNA is all over these puppies. And so as we got to talking, I said, you know, you need to look into our, our breeders alliance. Uh, and he didn't, even, he didn't know quite what I was talking about. I said, well, go to poodlepointer.org and read it. And, and look, at how many, look at how many versatile champions there are that are alive. Look at how many Utility Prize won poodle pointers there are that are alive. And I said, that's what this group, you know, working as a group, we've really raised the bar. And, uh, so he did and he got back with me and he said, you guys need to be in the bird dog museum. Your group needs to be, uh. he said, you know, and the, the bird dog museum houses the bird dog hall of fame and the retriever hall of fame. And so I, I was familiar with it, that organization because I'd been down and visited the organization in Grand Junction, Tennessee, a year previous. The guy that kind of manages that, uh, Gary Lockie, called me out of the blue and he said, Hey, I just read an article you wrote about grouse hunting and getting the, the grand slam of grouse in Idaho. And I'd written an article that there's five species of grouse in Idaho and the, the grand slam would be to kill one of each species in the month of September. And I think that was in the NAVDA magazine or something. Anyway, he said... He said I kind of manage the bird dog museum here in Tennessee and we have every species of upland game bird mounted except for a blue grouse and a spruce grouse mm. and he says any way you could get those for me and I said yeah I just next time I go to my cabin I'll <laughs> see if I can so I I did and I sent him off to a taxidermist and had him mounted and sent to him and so after he got him he you know he called and thanked me and and he said, you know, you need to, we, we got to visiting about the people that I knew that were in the Hall of Fame, you know, Dave Walker, Jim Reed, uh, John Lundin, just on and on and on and on. And because there were so many people in my past that I'd rope shoulders with that were very famous, became very famous. He said, you got to come down here and visit this place. He said, and I said, you know, how far is it from Nashville? You know, I, my wife would love to go to Nashville. So. We scheduled a trip and, and went and, and he told me he said he said don't don't be waiting too long he says you know I'm uh, I'm 95 years old <laughs> I'm gonna be here forever and uh, it, it was 90 something anyway so we scheduled a trip and went and uh, I mean if if people listening to this if you're if you're a hunting dog enthusiast and you've never seen the bird dog museum you're really missing out. I mean, it has, you know, all the stuff of Bob Whaley and, uh, Farrell Miller, all the famous people are in that, all the famous retriever people are in there. And it's, it, it took me, it took me probably four hours. Wow. To go through just, cause, cause it's four different buildings now that they've built and they're all about the size of a gymnasium and they're all hooked together. I mean, it's, but it just has everybody and Gary uh, yeah, knows that that facility inside and out and
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but anyway so from that Bob West he's on the board of directors for the, for the Bird Dog Museum so he, he put in for us to have a display for, for Napa in there and it's so uh, Lee Branch and I created a display and Lee put it up. So now, any, now you go in and you can really kind of get an idea of what a poodle pointer is about. Cause you know, we've got some pretty magnificent pictures of, oh, yeah. of these dogs working there and they're, they're not average pictures by any means. I mean, they're, but well, what, I... you know, when I left, he looked, he said, you know, I'm getting, he said, I'm getting pretty tired. I think it's about time I go home and take a nap. He said, any, anything that I can help you with that I didn't tell you about. I said, you know, there's just one thing. Tell me about that hat you're wearing. And he goes, well, that's my Navy hat. I retired as a captain. I said, really? You're in your nineties. I said, that means you were in the Navy during World War II. And I said, so what'd you do? And he said, I, I had a ship or a boat or whatever that followed the aircraft carriers around and if any of the Corsair pilots missed the ship missed the carrier, I picked them up out of the ocean. Wow. I said, really? I said, well, you didn't get to meet my dad, did you? And he said, your dad flew a Corsair? And I said, yeah. And so he asked me a little about it and I said, my dad wouldn't talk about it. I don't really have a lot of information. And... He said, what was his name? And I said, Stan Ferris. He said, what was his, lo- his crew names? And I said, Stanley Jefferson Ferris. So he, he sent me some information. And you know now I know, you know, my dad was second to uh, Pappy Boynton for the most kills. Wow. Uh, and Pappy had 26. My dad had 20. My dad was the first Corsair pilot that they loaded missiles on his plane. And, uh, you know, he, he had, he won the Navy cross. He, there was just a lot of, you know, past history that without, without Gary, I wouldn't know. And I don't, I don't know how he dug it out because I, I, you know, Phil Swain tried to dig some, some of that out for me once. And, you know, it's, it's almost like it's hidden. You know, anyway,
0: yeah, go ahead.
1: No, that's, that was just such a great, visit for me i mean it just compounded so
0: many yeah you know i say it all the time and i think it's still true and there's a perfect very very personal version of it but that what dogs and birds uh bring to human interactions uh it, it can only be described in stories like that we have a uh, common ground and all of a sudden that opens up myriad opportunities for getting to know each other a little bit better um it's that is a great story and your dad was a hero and uh, so was the captain and and for that matter so is phil swain who's been on the podcast recently thank you again phil um everybody else you're listening to the upland nation podcast yeah we're talking bird dogs and other things that's bob ferris author breeder uh, let's see what else: chucker hunter, dog trainer, uh, uh, navda judge, etc., etc., etc. We're de- digging deep into many of those things, including the North American Poodle Pointer Alliance. And hey, good to hear Bob West's name again. Uh, there's a guy who uh, he knows a little bit about um, um, high-scoring uh, versatile champions in the navda world. Um, oh, by the way, I'm Scott Linden. Yeah. And um let's 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 get on to some of this stuff. You sent me a bunch of related I, I guess I'll just call them test results. And and the thing that I I was really interested in was this whole idea that for years I've talked about poodle pointers on a pound for pound basis being basically the a, the dominant breed in the NAVDA testing program. Why do you think that is?
1: Water yeah. <laughs> they, they love water and they hate ducks. <laughs> so it, it, it's it's pretty easy if you you know if you're a reasonable trainer, it's pretty easy to get a, do- a poodle pointer to do a four duck search. If you know if you know how to do it and you expose them properly and whatnot, but uh, I think that's probably the the I tell people if you take a, a, a if you take a duck and a pheasant and you throw them both on the ground in front of a poodle pointer. Poodle Pointer will go pick up that duck. Every other dog on earth will leave that oily, stinky thing and go pick <laughs> up the pheasant. So, but, it, but it, that's very true, you know, and they, I think some of it, you know, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm just trying to be factual here, I'm not trying to brag, but I think when you start looking at Poodle Pointer pedigrees, it's really hard to do it and not find Cedarwood in the name. And it's because that I had such a passion to create a water dog, not just a pointing dog, and you know that was just my, my from the beginning my quest. And you know i I called. I might have said this in the last in the last podcast I, that we did, but I called Bob Whaley when my dogs were really young, and I asked him. I said, "I've I've read all your books." and I want to create a dog that's a a pointing breed that's an extremely good water dog and uh, I left him this phone message and about two weeks later he calls me back and he says, Mr. Ferris Robert G. Whaley here now what would be the purpose of this conversation and that's how he started it and I went, whoa (laughs) and uh, so I told him I was wanting to I'd read about how he had done so much line breeding with, uh, to create Snakefoot and whatnot, and he said, well, what, what do you have for breeding stock? And I said, well, I have two females, and they're, they're litter mates, and then I have a male, and he's not related. And he had a little pause there, and he said, Mr., you're nothing but an effing backyard breeder. He said, you call me when you've got 15 females and five males, and we'll have a conversation about line breeding. I never Mm. forgot that. I just never, I I mean, he was dead on. How in the hell do you think you can, so, you know, when I look back, (laughs) when I started breeding dogs, I kept two dogs out of every litter for years. Two puppies. Yeah. Sometimes a male, sometimes a female. And, you know, I have kept, I have kept, I wrote it down here somewhere, Uh, I have kept 49, where the hell did I write that, because it's important, (laughs) the amount of dogs, and you can can go to my website and you can just click on breeding stock and you're going to see all kinds of, uh, of dogs that I've kept in the past. You know, and the amount of the number of males that I kept, and and all of these males had to be utility tested,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so, you know, when you when you add that up, and you go 49, 49, I think it was uh, females, and maybe twenty five males. So I really created a breeding program, and there was, you know, and I kept keeping pups out of it and watching them test scores, and. You know, as as time has gone on, I can I can look at the test scores of some of my stud dogs and, and it's real apparent what where all the where all the top dogs have come from, you know. You know, as an example, Tucker, Cedarwood's first defense, uh, he had twenty seven puppies tested, male puppies tested in utility a 187 average
0: out of two or four. Oh, in natural ability? It, no, wait a minute.
1: No, you're no, skipping on. You yeah, it.
0: Yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah.
1: In natural ability, Tucker had 151 puppies tested out of him. The average of that 151 is 105
0: out of 112.
1: And when you think of that, 151 pups. Well, P- Tucker got more honeymoons than anybody <laughs> around here. Uh, so. <laughs> But, you know, I've got a dog named uh, Cedarwood's image of Tucker. I call him Diesel. Diesel's had 45 pups tested with a 107 average. And Diesel's had only six utility dogs tested with 178 average. Then I have another dog named Hidden Acres Atlas, my grandson's dog. That dog had 14 uh, of his pups tested in utility with a 190 average. Wow! So when I look at a pedigree and I can see Hidden Acres Atlas uh, Diesel uh, Tucker two or three times, I know I know it's going to be a home run as far as water dogs. You, you know. And,
0: uh, let Let me just jump in here, Bob, because this is important. Uh, the, the takeaway for a, a schmo like me who's looking for a good bird dog is find breeders who track this kind of stuff and can show you the numbers. That is how you know whether you're getting a decent dog or not. And and the Poodle Pointer Alliance is a great example of emphasizing performance, if you want to call it that, isn't it?
1: It's all about performance. I mean, yeah. I, Jason, Jason Nix sent me all these numbers. He just said, Hey Bob, I've been, he, he, he loves doing data and he takes it all off of the NAVDA website, mm-hmm. but he crunched these numbers for stud dogs, the top poodle pointer stud dogs. And, uh, you know, he, we have such a great team that works so well together. That Alliance, I don't know, three, four years ago, kind of almost had a, a, a upheaval, which all dog groups eventually seem to have an upheaval. But when they, When the dust settled, it went from 49 members down to 25. And the organization became incorporated. They bought the trademark for NAPA. They had a six-member board of directors. And all of these guys are top-end dog people that are on the board of directors now. And, you know, they work so well as a team, you know, helping – new people, maybe sell puppies, but for the most part, crunching data and, and being able to emphasize top end dogs. And you know, there there there's a there's a point where I, I I had to I had to kind of do some soul searching about people that were not members of the Alliance but bred poodle pointers. And so I, I went to the Navda website and I counted all of the all of the poodle pointer breeders that had registered a litter of puppies as a poodle pointer. And I went through that and I went, there was over a hundred. Wow. Well, Napa, Napa is, is 30. So there's 70. And you know, there was a time that I'd say, well, there's 70 rogue breeders out there, <laughs> but, but that's not true. Cause when I went through that list and I looked at the test scores, all of these breeders, all of them, had tested dogs and they were testing their dogs to pretty much the same standard that Napa tests. And I went, well, so they, they, they realized boodle planters are expected to be tested. There's only two breeders that don't test their dogs out of that 100. So the odds of somebody getting a dog from, you know, if, if, if you do your homework and you're not really an, extremely avid hunter, but you're just wanting a really nice family dog and you're a casual hunter, you don't have to get a dog from the Alliance. You you don't. I mean, there's, and I I know almost every breeder uh, that was on that original list. And, you know, a lot of them don't hunt. I mean, I I live where it's easy to hunt, for Christ's sake, you know. But, you know, if you live in in Florida or you live in Ohio, what what, what are you going to hunt? you're going to yeah. go to a game farm
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you, you just cannot do the practical side of things which uh, we'll, we will talk about after the break quite a bit but you, you make a real good point Bob.
1: Well I just I just don't I just don't I'm, I'm not going to breed any of my stud dogs to anybody that's not part of the alliance. I'm going to be true true to that but I'm never I'm never going to discourage somebody from buying a puppy from a non-alliance breeder. The only thing I'll say is you probably can get a little higher performance level in your dog, you know? You know, it's just like the horses that get invited to the Kentucky Derby. There's a hell of a lot of good racehorses out there, and there's just a handful of them that are bred to where they can, you know, race for that Triple Crown. They're just a handful, but... Doesn't mean there aren't a hell of a lot of good race horses.
0: Uh, speaking of which, yes, um, that hundred to one shot in the in the first of the three races. <laughs> uh, but you know, th- this is all. Useful, helpful information. I wish I had had before I wrote that article for Gundog on picking a new puppy. <laughs> but I think yeah. I touched on the high points. But anyway, um, that's Bob Ferris. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. We got a lot more to cover. We kind of talked. St- Strategy and philosophy and a lot of breeding. After the break, let's get a little bit more practical, down and dirty to the brass tacks level in just a moment. Bob, you get a chance to take a quick break while I cover a couple things, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Upcoming... Besides more Bob Ferris and practical bird hunting and dog training tips, we have industry insider Andy McCormick on what the hell is making everything so goofy in the firearms industry. And, of course, the Upland Nation glossary gets to the letter Q. Yeah, just like the James Bond character. All coming up after a couple messages. The first for my own project, fur feathers <clears throat> this is your chance to show off your dog with somebody you don't normally hunt with that was the whole genesis of this project many years ago in Kansas still true it's a chance for you to share your dog's talents whether it's water retrieving or anything else with somebody who you need to go hunting with learn more about it at FurFeathersFriends.com. you never know you might win yourself a hunt ready Strap vest. That's one of the prizes on offer if you get involved. Taking somebody somewhere, whether it's joining us in Huron, South Dakota, or just going out in your own favorite spots for FeathersFriends.com. And uh, we just came off the Memorial Day weekend, and I hope you celebrated and honored those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Rough. Land Kennels has come out with some patriotic colors in their roto-molded kennel line. You know, they pioneered roto-molded dog crates, and now they have them in red, white, and blue, among others. You want to learn more about them, go to roughlandkennels.com and you spell rough like your dog would. R-U-F-F, Roughlandkennels.com. They also have some great accessories. I was reminded of one just recently. They have bird boxes with some very logical solutions to some of the problems I've had. (laughs) Trying to get a close-up on a Bob White, we pulled one out of a bird box just to make sure we had one handy for a close-up in my hand. And Of course, that box wasn't as well designed as the Roughland Kennels box. And sure enough, we went through three birds before I finally caught one and got it out of the box without it escaping so take a look at all their accessories as well at roughlandkennels.com i bet a lot of birds don't get out of your hands once one of your poodle pointers brings them along bob ferris welcome back to the upland nation podcast
1: how are you? I'm back.
0: Good, and so am I. Well, <laughs> whether I anybody it. wants me or not.
1: I found this number I was looking for. Yeah, on the back of go it, ahead. But, well, what it was, was I counted up how many male poodle pointers that I have tested in in NAVTA, in utility, 31. And today I have six stud dogs and I think 16 of those 31 were prize one. Uh, then I, how many females had I, had I run? 82, 82 females in Navda utility tests. So with those numbers, and right now I have 11 females currently I, to breed, and, and six males. So with those numbers, I have a lot of genetic diversity that I can play with. And that's kind of, the average guy, he, he doesn't have the ability to do that. You I know, mean, I said earlier that I, I kept two puppies from every litter. And I, I have a huge network of people here in Boise that are housing my dog. They, <laughs> I own the dog legitimately, but, but they live with them. I started with my daughter, and then my son, and, and then some hunting buddies, and it just goes on and on and on. And... I was able to keep a puppy and give it to a friend and say, I'll be back in a year and then I'm going to test this dog and have to make a decision whether the dog's going to be bred or not. So, you know, I, I left a hell of a lot of money on the table by giving dogs away, but it allowed me to create a breeding program. Not, not like Bob Whaley did, but kind of similar because you know, Bob yeah. Whaley owned hundreds. He lived in New York. He had a big kennel, facility in alabama and he had hundreds of dogs in, in alabama at, at times so to really do it you you've, you've got to have you got to have the volume of dogs you can't just you can't just breed old rex to to your female and and figure you're you're, you're going somewhere in a breeding program
0: well that. And, That in itself is is gold, because a lot of us, hey, I'm one of them. Uh, My first wire hair was a backyard breeding, so it's my second one. Glad for them, and they had some pretty good lines to them, but not near the degree that you're describing.
1: Well, like I said a bit ago, I don't don't have anything against anybody buying a dog from somebody else, and maybe it doesn't have as strong a pedigree. 80% of the people that ring my doorbell wanting to buy a Poodle pointer, 80% aren't going to hunt that much. Most of why they want it's because it's a different breed of dog. Their buddies don't have it or or they met one or it's the personality or they like the looks. But 80% don't come here saying, but I want the absolute best possible hunting dog I can get my hands on. You know, And, and that's okay. I have a few guys that are really heavy-duty hunters, but for the most part, you know, we don't have the hunting that we used to have anywhere. We don't have it here in Idaho, uh, but we still, and we probably have more hunting dogs than we used to, too, though. Oh, yeah. A lot of hunting, you know, there's a hell of a lot of hunting dogs that become family dogs, and uh, that's, a, that's, that's the gift that I see, is being able to take a really outstanding hunting dog and leave it in the house all day while you go to work and come back and your house isn't destroyed. And, you know, and the dogs just laying there greeting you and somebody rings the doorbell. It doesn't want to attack them and whatnot. They're just friendly. That's, those are the bonuses that I see.
0: Well, I agree. I mean, what we're trying to uh, breed here, uh, and, and raise are. Certainly, dogs that are good citizens, as well as everything else, and and you just summarize it in in yet another way. Let's let's get uh, let's get to some things that are more uh, application of the philosophy and the theory that we've been talking about. Uh, and let's start with the one that you helped me with the last time I was out there so many years ago, uh, and that is this whole idea of water work. Um, a lot of bird dogs period not just versatile dogs but in almost any bird dog even some retrievers just don't have the water love that we would like them to have if you were going to help us with one or two quick tips on how to get your dog more comfortable in water what would you do well the first, the first thing
1: is most people make the mistake of walking up to water and throwing something in and hoping the dog will go get it. And you, you do that three, four, or five times. You've just taught the dog how to run up and down the bank and not go in. So until a, dog, until a dog can swim, you should never throw anything in the water and expect them to go get it. And, you know, I, I have a swimming pool in the backyard, and it's so apparent to me. I, I don't like to wade in. When that water starts working its way up my belly, when it gets to about my belly button, I got to dunk and get wet. Ah. Or I got, you no, know, I, I, I can't just, con- and that's pretty much a fact. And you watch dogs, they'll wade in, and as soon as that water touches their belly, they stop. So the, the key is to teach them how to swim. Well, the best way is to carry them out and set them down in swimming water and let them swim back to shore. And, you know, don't, don't, don't be trying to get them to retrieve. Teach them how to swim, so they're comfortable and they feel good about it. Take them somewhere, put on uh, a pair of waders, wade across a little creek or something, and and have them wade with you. You know, my my property down at uh, notice Hunting Property. When we built those ponds, we put islands, and I call it island hop, and I'd take a young dog, five six months old, and put a leash on it, and I just I just walk from island to island to island, and every time Every time the lead got tight, I just kept walking and it'd pull the dog in. And it, after a while they learned, well, the lead's getting tight. He's going to pull me in. I might as well just go with him. Yeah. And once they're comfortable, I reverse the process. I have the dog in the water and I throw the object on the land. So now they swim to land, they go get the object and I'm right there to meet them right after they get it. So I, I reverse all that when I'm teaching young dogs to retrieve, it's, it's way more successful. Uh, and then eventually you have to teach them to go in on their own. And if if, if that's the point where you can really evaluate, okay, are they really don't have any love for water or, or not? And most, most of the time they'll do it. I can't tell you how many dogs I've, I've, Large Munster Landers, to small Munster Landers, short hairs, beasless that I have taught to go in the water by doing doing it the way I described, rather than not walking up and throwing something in the water. If you're gonna do it that way, it better be a live bird that's flopping. Something like that. You can you can entice a dog to go in that
2: yeah, way
0: too. Yeah, and and that's what we ended up doing with one of my dogs, my two or three dogs right. ago when we were there. We were kind of uh, short short shortening the whole process, and he was a uh, uh, beyond puppyhood at that point.
1: <coughs> Pardon so me you 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 did a podcast uh, with a lady up in I think she's in Washington Potter.
0: Oh, Sharon Potter. Yeah, no, she's up uh, um, uh, okay. in the Upper Midwest. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, does she have Chesapeake's?
0: Yes, she does.
1: So, you need to do a podcast someday with Linda Harger.
0: Okay. That's
1: Linda Harger owned the pond that we swam your dog in.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Linda, Linda Harger is the most right. celebrated Ch- Chesapeake person I think there's ever been. I don't know how many field champions she's made. And she's got to be, she's still queen of the Chesapeake field trial circuit. She's got a young dog named... Uh, mcqueen and it you know you can just you can follow her bloodlines from her first dog uh... widgeon uh, widgeon to surf breaker to and it just keeps going on and she's kind of done the same thing that i've done but she's done it with field trial field trial uh... chesapeake's
0: well she, we're all looking for she, advice and i'm grateful that she lent us her pond by the way
1: yeah. Well, sometime you want to talk to somebody in a yeah. different wrinkle. She's, she's, yeah. she's been there and back. I love, oh, it. you know, she knows all, the, all, all the gigs. She's
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, um, dog training in general. Um, I, I I recall I, I recounted earlier in the podcast some of the things that I'm doing right now, kind of uh, dr- dropping back a few steps on a few things. But when you see all these folks who come to you either because they have one of your dogs or you've judged them or you've trained or worked with them in one way or another, what are the, what are the biggest training goofs we make? This time of year, that's what we're all working on. I think one of
1: the biggest goofs that are made are people – you know, you, you get some homing pigeons, you get, a, you get a dog trip bird launcher, and you go out and try to train the dog to be a pointing dog. And what happens is that bird launcher has 50 times more scent than a wild bird's ever going to have. And so it makes it simple, and you, don't, and, and you allow the dog to track you right up to it. Next thing you know, the dog that normally would have a, an instinctive point is trying to pounce on that launcher, and everything just gets back to the dog trying to pounce and catch. And if you really break down the, the instincts that these dogs have, the first is the instinct to point. Then mm-hmm. the versatile dogs have an instinct to pounce, just like a fox. Sure. Pointers don't do it. Pointers, when they go on point? They're on point. Poodle pointers, and I mean, you got to look at the short here and say, well, how much pointer was infused into that short hair line well if it's a lot it probably is going to stand birds better but poodle pointers you can watch them rock back getting ready to pounce and so i i've i've shortcutted the whole system because i i want to train hunting dogs i don't necessarily want to train dogs just for a a one day nav to test i want to train so i take where dogs and just let them let them run and try to get them into as many wild birds as possible. But then I deflight them. I take a bag full of homers and I'll go out and when the dog is pretty active in front of me, I'll fly to Homer and they see it and they chase it and I throw my thumb on the continuous of the, of the Mm e-collar. And when they stop, I lift my thumb. Now that's a pretty low stimulation, but then I turn it up a little bit and then I fly a second one. And then I fly the third one. And each time I fly the pigeon, I turn the e-collar up just a skosh. Eventually, I get to a level that they just they just put on the brakes and freeze. Yeah. And I go, perfect, I got you. So the next day, I go out and I put birds in launchers. But I make sure the dog can't smell them. And when the dog gets about 10 feet from the launcher, I pop the bird up. And if the dog chases it, I throw my thumb on continuous and I basically teach them stop to flush. Yeah. Now, now when you plant a bird in a launcher after that and the dog finds it, it's going to instinctively point that and hold that because it does not want that bird to get up in the air because it knows if that bird gets in the air, I may not be safe. So they start pointing and they start pointing at better distances. and, And if they do break, I launch the bird. And I'll give them, and I don't then go to continuous. I give them a little vibrate Yeah. saying, Hey, 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 you should have, you shouldn't, but I, I, I can't go to now training pace and, and watch some of the things that go on. You know, one of the things I can't stand is to see somebody with a young dog and they got a 50 foot check cord on it and it's six, 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 eight months old. Yeah. Like train the dog, you know, you're, you're trying to teach it instead of train it. So that's one of the things I do. I deflight dogs. yeah, And, uh, you know, if, if somebody's preparing a dog for a NAVDA test for natural ability, one of the worst things you can do is just go out and plant birds, plant birds, plant birds, because the dog learns that, okay, he unloads me from the truck. He's going to take me... Th- Forty yards, right over there, probably, and that's where the bird's planted. And he's going to expect me to point it, and he's going to have me on a check cord. But that's the worst way to train there, is and, you know. Years ago, about everything I've ever learned, somebody taught me, and you know, I got to be honest about it. And uh, years ago, I used to train a lot with Jeff Funky, and Jeff and I would go when we'd train a young dog for natural ability we wouldn't put any birds out. We would Mm -hmm. just run them Mm -hmm. on a blank field. And then when I saw Jeff coming back to the truck with his dog, I'd slip over and and plant a bird. And at the very end, we'd let that dog smell and point a bird, but never right out of the gate. I mean, it's so terrible to just, you know, you're going to to plant a bird and then unload the dog and take the dog straight to that bird. I mean, that's just, that's terrible because... Next thing you know, they get in and out and they get hyped up with extra people around, extra cars, extra dogs, and there's uh, three or four people going out in the field with them. They start breaking and chasing and having a glorious day, and you know, you just see it over and over. Uh, I, see I don't it. know. I'm, I'm a
0: well, I see it I'm, daily. If if I'm lazy on any given day, I'll I'll put a bird close in and get it over with. That's the idea. And sure enough, that's exactly what starts to happen. So, I, 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 man, that hits home for me and probably for a lot of other people, too. I know it takes a lot longer, but now we're going out without birds on the ground quite often before you know, it's, we introduce the bird. It's magical. Yeah, it is. What happens.
1: Well, You know, I've... I've got a guy that trains for me now, Frank Schmidt. And I mean, I, I don't know that I've in my life ever met a more dedicated bird dog trainer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I'd give you the deed to my house if he's not training a dog right now. (laughs) He just, that's all he does is train, train, train. I call him, you go, where are you at? And he go, Oh, I'm down here by the sand dunes. You know, I I got this dog and this dog and he loves training. And I had to reel him in. I said, "You know, you're planting too many birds. You gotta, you gotta let these dogs just run with no birds and learn to hunt without any birds, and uh, and then have have a bird planted at the, at the very end." And uh, there's there's just a lot of psychology that you gotta kind of look at, and 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 you know, as you train dogs and. It's the same I, I see things, I see people screwing up at the water over and over and over, begging their dog to go get a bumper, and the dog's running up and down the bank, looking for a bridge to get in, and they <laughs> teach, teach the damn dog to swim and then they come do this. Don't,
0: you know? don't, don't bring back those memories, please. <laughs> <laughs> We, um, got, we got that dog. We got that dog to swim. Oh yeah, he did fine, and yeah. and the others too. Yeah. And and thanks in large part to advice from you and other wonderful people, including Jeff Funky. Thank you, Jeff, for my third really good dog, uh, Bob. Uh, Scratch, scratch any part of your body, and uh, and uh, and you'll find a chucker hunter in there. If you were going to give us any advice for chucker hunting, that maybe is not again not the typical stuff that everybody reads in my stories or their stories or that book or whatever. What's something that we maybe hadn't thought about when it comes to chasing those dang birds? Well, you know, it's that's
1: a that's in this day and age that's tough because. Yeah there's so many guys hunting chuckers and you know, they checkers are getting smarter than the hunters. And, you know, and back when I started hunting chuckers that nobody hunted them,
2: yeah. there
1: were so many pheasants, everybody hunted pheasants. I hunted chuckers with an old guy named Joe Leonard. And, you know, Joe, Joe had all these rules that, you know, you had to abide by when you hunted yeah. with him. And he used to recite those all the way up to where you're going. And, but he could read the country. he could, he, he would say, don't ever hunt chuckers at daylight. That's wh- that's when the coward hunts them. Wait, wait till <laughs> yeah. 10, 11 o'clock. He said, at daylight, they're at water. Nobody hunts birds when they're watering. And he would always want them to get to their mid-morning roost, which he would say, they've always got a run o- runway and they go up and they'll find them. The head of a draw is a perfect place. So if you've got you can look at the countryside and see five or six draws going up and you can hunt those you can get up on and hunt right above those the heads of those draws Here, that's where you're going to find the birds at ten, eleven o'clock and you know I it's pretty you know there's there's so many weather conditions so to change all that sometimes you know I've got a spot in Nevada that uh it's just flat as a pancake and it's a valley
2: mm-hmm. it, it's
1: a valley sagebrush and you wouldn't ever think that chuck but you know when it snows and gets cold those those birds come down and they they roost around that sagebrush yeah rather than be up on the wind swept side hills you see so you got to really kind of think it through go well, what was the weather like last night what was you know what's the weather like today it's you know, it's really sunny and warm. Birds don't like to sunbathe. They, they they need some kind of shade and it's usually a sagebrush. So on real sunny, hot days, you know, that's you need to find some, some and or maybe they'll be on the north side of the of the hill,
2: mm-hmm. you know, to get mm-hmm. in the
1: shade. But, you know, you you can plant chuckers you know, in training and if if it's a, if it's a real hot sunny day, They'll get up and run off on you Cause they just don't, they don't like it. But, well, I don't know anymore. There's just so many people. My suggestion is, is, uh, find, find a way to get a mile from the road <laughs> because you're just going to run into people and there's nothing worse than hunting your butt off. And and, and the birds are just so wild. You know, those. I remember. I remember hunting with Jeff Funky one one time and I had, Tucker was five months old and uh, we were seeing these birds get up four or five hundred yards out and I said, What the hell? I I said, You bring me to a place that's been overhunted, Jeff and he goes <laughs> and he goes, Yeah, and you bring that brown piece of crap He said that he said, Look out there, five hundred yards He said, You're you're damn brown dogs and I looked and Hell Chuck Tucker was well, out there flushing birds having a great time, you know.
2: <laughs>
1: and I was totally embarrassed. So I shocked the crap out of him. And that's when I learned about stop the flush and what I described before about yeah, yeah. don't let a dog chase birds in the air. You know, and it's it's so it's so effective. And you know, if you're hunting I'm hunting. I have my my shotgun in my right hand. I have my e-collar in my left hand. I don't have it. I don't have it hooked to my vest or anything. I have it right in my left hand. That way, if I catch a dog chasing a bird in the air, I stimulate them. And usually, I the, the ones that are trained, I just vibrate them. I just use the vibrate mode, and they know. Yeah. And they just quit. And and uh, you know, the other thing about trucker hunting. That's so important. Is a dog learns instinctively. It takes excellent number of trips and flushes and whatnot, but they learn that I can be seen by chuckers, you know, in the because there's no cover.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: just mm-hmm. flat, and it's just the grass is only a half inch high and shale rock and whatnot, and so they the smart dogs learn to point those birds a hundred maybe 150 yards off the cubby. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that is because they know if I go any farther, those birds are going to see me and they're going to flush and I may get shocked. So I'm going I'm to stay way back here and people wonder well, why is my dog pointing so far off? You get into the sagebrush where they're basically camouflaged by this or, or hidden by the sagebrush. You know, now they'll point 10 yards off. So, that's another thing you got to always got to understand. You're going to see some really long points up up on ridge lines where there's hardly any cover.
2: And you, you know that
1: same dog. And you you go you go hunt you go hunt pheasants in a CRP field in North Dakota. He's gonna he's gonna be comfortable pointing birds three feet away Sure. because he knows the bird can't see me. I'm hidden.
0: Well, you know yeah. I <clears throat> I never thought about that. I do think dogs ponder those things and maybe not every night after dinner but they do and they figured out and and of course your idea of wild bird contact being the best training tool ever is also uh, i mean perfectly uh uh illustrated there there's there's also the um the stuff that blocks scent and you know i'll never forget a hunt we did in california many years ago where there was a uh, a kind of a shrub that yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, shin to thigh high, but there was running room underneath it. But none of the bird scent would get through that thick shrubbery. So the dogs were all pointing at three feet and five feet instead of 80 yards. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's some physical aspects of it as well. And I and I think they all enter into it every day, but that the idea of a dog... Being seen by birds as a threat uh, is well, sit-
1: sitting is the biggest mystery of it all. I, I mean, and it, it changes, and it you know here's I've played with this quite a bit over the years, and you know I, I had a judge come out here, Mike Polata from uh, Ontario, Canada. He judged for us, and he wanted to make sure he showed the bird planters how they were going to plant his birds for him that day. And he went out with them and, and what he, his thing, he owned, he owned the pheasant club where he planted pheasants for customers and stuff. So I mean, he was very well aware how to plant a bird. And he said, this whole thing about sticking a head under a wing, he said, dogs can't find that bird because you've muffled the breath.
2: Huh. He
1: said, it's the breath. It's the breath that they point. It's not the scent of the bird. And he did a, and he said, is it, it at, at noon, he, he wanted everybody to see his little demonstration. So he planted a bird, he dizzied it, and he just dropped it on its head and let it flip over on its feet, and it was planted. And then he planted another bird where he put the head under the wing and planted that one. And then he took a dead bird and planted it as a third bird. So we took a dog up to the dead bird, and then it made no attempt to point that bird. It mm-hmm. didn't. Oh, I smell a bird, and it picked it up. Yeah, went to the one under its wing, and it pointed that bird probably three feet away, and then pounced and caught it. But to the third bird that he'd not muffled the breath at all. The dog pointed that one from about ten yards. Yeah, and and it's it's the breath that it's you know if when you've got a bird you smell. You, you, you realize they got terrible breath. So when that <laughs> breath comes, when that breath comes out of that bird, I've never kissed one,
0: so I can't say.
1: <laughs> when it comes out of that bird, it barometric pressure tells it where it's going to go. And if it's, you know, if it's the breath, let's say it comes out of the bird at 90 degrees, heat rises. So if the temperature of that day is 40 degrees, that 90 degree breath is going to rise up really nice and just float around. If the temperature is ninety degrees and the breath is ninety degrees, mm-hmm. it ain't go nowhere. It's really hard for that dog to find a bird in ninety degree weather because of that. So, you know, when you're training, and it, you know you do your training early while the temperatures are in the forties, it gives your dog a better chance than going out in the 80, 90 degree weather and asking them to to scent a bird, but. I and mean, those are things that a lot of people don't know. They don't think through. I would almost guarantee you half of the the judges don't really know that,
2: you know, that,
1: and they don't think through that. But I'll tell you the guy that does Jeff Funky. Jeff Funky has probably the best mind, uh, for hunting dog. I don't, you know, he's just, he must lay awake at nights just thinking about stuff. But I mean, he, he has a great mind for training and hunting. He's, he's, I haven't seen him for three or four years. I need to stop in and see him. But, uh, a lot of these are the things that, that, you know, when you're traveling in the truck that you should be discussing.
0: Oh, I agree. Probably. And, and, you know, he, he and I still have yet after three dogs from him, I, I have yet to hunt with him, but I will. And thanks for the, thanks for the nudge on that. And you should go down the road and see him too. Um, Man, we could go on forever and ever. I wish we were in a truck and we could carry on this conversation all the way to northern Nevada, but we'll do it again. Bob Ferris is uh, one of those guys that, uh, it, it, I, you know, I, I hate to say it because he'll get a swelled head, but he's a legend in the poodle pointer world, in the NAVDA world. The guy's done it all. You want to learn more about that? He walks his talk. Go to cedarwoodgundogs.com, cedarwoodgundogs.com. If you want his book, it's available on Amazon. It is called Breeding and Training Versatile Hunting Dogs for Hunting and Hunt Tests. Especially if you're testing a dog, Bob's got some great tips on how to do that. And believe me, you got to train yourself as well as the dog for those tests. Take my word for it. Bob, so enjoyed it. Learned something. I, well, more than one thing, i I got to say that. Thank you so much for being on the Upland Nation podcast. Love it. Love talking about this stuff. We will do it in person next time. I promise you.
1: All right. You getting Boise or, like I told you, I'm headed to Willamette Lake as soon as this is over and uh, spend a spend a week over there and uh, wander around and see if there what the chucker hatch is going to look like
0: over there. Love it. Well, safe travels to you. Well, I'll see you down the road real soon. Thanks.
1: All right. You bet. Adios.
0: Oh, and the rest of you, don't go anywhere because we've got a lot more to cover, including industry insider Andy McCormick and his thoughts on the firearms supply chain, among other things. The Upland Nation Glossary goes to the letter Q right after a couple quick announcements. The first, my friends at Huron, South Dakota, invite you to visit the Ringneck Nation. Learn more about them at SD. Learn about the Ringneck Festival and the Bird Dog Challenge if you're up for a little bit of competition. If not, just learn more about the 124,000 acres of public access within an hour's drive of town. And town is one of those places that is all about welcoming bird hunters in the fall. You get a free information packet at hunt.com here on sd.com plus links to all the other stuff you need from the state's hunting atlas to how to apply for a license you get maps discounts information of all sorts at hunt here on sd.com and my friends at midvalleyclays.com are real busy right about now they're getting the oregon state sporting clays championship off the ground but They've always got room for you. And in fact, for me and my friend Tom, we're going over to take a lesson from Dave and Vandy real soon at midvalleyclays.com. Yes, they're all of that and more, including the shooting school. We're going to take my RV. We're going to park. We're going to stay a night or two. We're going to shoot some fee tasks, take a lesson. And then I'm going to laugh at Tom's lesson after he laughs at my lesson. How about you? If you're traveling the West Coast, Go to midvalleyclays.com and learn more about what they've got to offer. Every clay target game on the board is right there for you. And on Wednesdays, they'll stay as late as the last shooter. They call it After Hours Wednesday. So if you're local and you want to shoot after work, they got lights, just call ahead. They'll take care of you until you are sick and tired of shooting clay targets at midvalleyclays.com. we're up to the letter q in the upland nation glossary only one entry in the q's unless you have any suggestions and i'd love to have those any place we talk all the social media or drop me an email doesn't matter q is for quartering most of us know kind of what that is that's that left to right pattern that a dog runs in the field ideally Um, Kind of a windshield wiper pattern and arc in front of the hunter. We call that quartering, among other things. That's the letter Q in the Upland Nation Glossary. If you want the whole glossary, and thank you all for contributing over the years, go to findbirdhuntingspots.com. And now it's time for a new feature here at the Upland Nation podcast love talking to insiders in the industry that is well kind of what i used to do a lot more of than i get to now but luckily for all of us i've got andy mccormick on the line he's the senior executive vp at legacy sports you know them as the providers of pointer shotguns here at the upland nation podcast but they got so much more in store for us andy welcome to the podcast
3: well, thank you, Scott. Glad to be here.
0: <laughs> now, you you guys are, uh, you know, classic, and it seems to be happening more and more in the outdoors industry, but also in the firearms industry in particular. What other lines are you guys carrying?
3: Uh, well, besides the pointer line, we carry the HALA uh, rifles that are renowned for their accuracy and value. Uh, we carry the Citadel line, which is a broad spectrum of everything from uh, home defense shotguns, rim fires, 1911 handguns, Uh, And then we also carry some optics, uh, Nikko Sterling, uh, with various price ranges uh, up and down the scale from rim fires to uh, first focal plane, long range precision shooting stuff. And then last but not least, we added uh, Hardy rifles to the picture this year, which are very high end carbon fiber switch barrel setups that are very unique and Will be something we're pushing in the years to come.
0: Well, good luck on that. That's kind of exciting in itself. And uh, imagine that a lot of uh, a lot of your expansion plans or your marketing in general has been affected by these massive supply chain issues. How are you guys coping with them? And give us an overview of how that's how that's affecting the industry today.
3: Well, in all honesty, I'm one of those guys that kind of thinks a little bit against the grain when it comes to marketing, and advertising. Uh, be it with industry slowdowns or uh, supply chain stuff. I, I think uh, it's imperative to still continue the marketing process on especially on new products that you bring to the table mm-hmm. uh, and keep them moving forward and keeping people's interest, etc, either be it an industry publication that is for dealer related stuff or distributor related, or consumer and user-related publications. And we we kind of cover both of those to be able to make sure that we're keeping everybody happy and there's the pull-through at the retail level for the dealers uh, with the end user coming in asking for product. And then there's obviously catalog circulation, which is huge for us. I'm Mm -hmm. a big believer in catalogs, as you well know. You're in our catalog. (laughs) Um, So uh, pushing all that stuff out there is, I think, a continuous thing we focus on. And then there's social media content and stuff like we're doing today, talking and trying to keep people in the loop on the good, the bad, the ugly of uh, supply chain stuff and ammunition. And that's uh, on everybody's mind for months and months and months. And now you have the recession, you know, innuendos and inflation all on top of that. And you got everybody wondering about what, what kind of shape they're going to be in to put gas in a truck to travel, to go hunt and uh, put ammo in their vests and uh, get a new shotgun and, go out and test it. Those are all variables people are thinking about. And if I was going to say anything about how to focus on things from here forward into the fall, I would say, get out there and do your shopping now. Mm -hmm. Get your orders in now because that's what a lot of the dealers and distributors are doing are shopping for fall goods now to make sure they have inventory to be able to service uh, all the hunters and shooters out there when it season comes this last season as you well know was brutal trying to find shotgun ammo uh, of any gauge and if it was a specialized ammo it was even harder you know if it was a dove load or if it was a quail load or if it was a chucker load or pheasant load or waterfowl load they all had their own issues so all i can say is get out there you know and be diligent about trying to find your stuff now so you're not searching last minute before the opener to find stuff in there. You get shocked when you can't find anything in it. And I literally just came back from Nebraska and visited the Hornady facility. And I was told there that there's no time soon is anything going to catch up.
0: Wow.
3: And these people are rocking. I mean, if people think they're not making ammo, let me tell you otherwise. Because I went through that facility and I was in awe of the amount of machinery that was going nonstop, nonstop. And it has been added over the year to try and service and take care of the issues. so
0: well you know we're we're starting to hear more and more of that and starting to hear that certain types of ammo for example are available on on the firearm side particularly on the shotgun side where we're interested you know what seemed to be and what are the hang-ups today why can't why can't we see more shotguns coming from well wherever they're made and they're made everywhere uh to to retailer shelves what what is the biggest hang up well, is it is it raw metal or is it staff to build
3: it's a combination of stuff to tell you the truth it's everything from raw material supplies to transitioning from craziness of uh, the beginning of the covid to you know the riots in Minneapolis that spread all over the country and people started buying home defense shotguns so you had a lot of uh, firearms manufacturers that were focused on the uh, market that sure. was more tactical. So the production lines and people and material was being devoted to that. And then making the transition back to true sporting shotguns, you know, all of a sudden we found out we had, there's a shortage of walnut. Oh, you wow. Know? Uh, so that held things up. And then you had uh, issues with uh, containers get, uh, being able or accessible to put product on the water to ship. So us as importers, you know, took measures to kind of leapfrog and get ahead of that stuff and be able to put stuff on airlines and put it in the air and get it to here and get to market quicker, which is obviously more expensive, but you know, you look at, you don't want to lose shelf space or availability somewhere. You want to be able to provide uh, inventory out there across the country. And that was one way that we kind of, took action and, and got ahead of a lot of people in that way. Uh, so, and then when things slow down, you can shut it off by air as well. Mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. So,
0: well, th- that's remarkable. And I was telling that to somebody not a couple days ago that you guys were f- literally flying in guns so that you could keep your pipeline stoked.
3: And yeah. th-
0: they thought I was hallucinating. Apparently no. that, that is not done near as often as one might think.
3: Yeah. Because when you start looking at, you know, the the cost effectiveness of it, you start to wonder, you know, the cost of fuel and everything else. But, you know, it made sense given the, given the equations when you put the numbers together to have the product at slightly less profitable because you got to factor in those costs. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: uh, It was better to have product put on the market and still keep, you know, presenting your brand out there, you know, in the market. Uh, It was a big deal.
0: Well, speaking so. of the brand, Pointer Shotguns in particular, you guys are you know constantly expanding your distribution. What are the major retailers where we can find your products?
3: Uh, we work with a lot of the box stores. We work with uh, Shields, Dick Sporting Goods. Uh, we work with uh, Cal Ranch is big, Turner's Outdoorsman, Sportsman's Warehouse, uh cabela's bass pro they all buy in some way shape or form and then there's major distribution channels throughout the country that we work with Mm -hmm. uh, as well that service those accounts and we're seeing more and more of the distribution channel uh handle a lot of those uh, box accounts uh, so that they can manage their inventory a little better and quickly and they have a table of dimensions and weights and so they can drop ship stuff at a, a in a moment's notice from a distributor as long as they have the inventory and information to these key box accounts and then you have your independent dealers all over mm-hmm. the country that we continue to support you know the mom and pop stores has always been a big part of our business uh, to make sure they get taken care of uh so there's a broad spec and then conservation groups we do a ton of business with conservation groups sure from everybody across the board from upland to waterfowl pheasants forever i'm sending guns uh, tomorrow for Pheasants Forever for a shotgun review thing they do over in Minnesota in June. That uh, is a bunch of riders come in and they go through a sporting clays course and they have various new models of guns that they get to try out and they do the reviews. So So we stay in touch with those guys too because I'm a big fan of working with the conservation groups because it's all about getting your product in the hand of the consumer as fast as you can. And there's not many other entities out there where you send a product to a fundraising banquet, the guy picks it up and it's in the field of being used much quicker than if you send it to a distributor where it's got to go from a distributor to a dealer and it's got to go three feet across the retail counter from the dealer to the end user, then to the field. So, so I've always been a big advocate of, you know, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Turkey Federation, Elk Foundation, SCI, you know, uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, Grouse Society, Mule Deer Foundation—all of them, we we play in that realm a lot daily. There's guns that go out of here for those 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 groups.
0: I never thought of that as a uh, distribution strategy, but it starts to ring true when you talk about the timeline. I love that idea. Well, it, the
3: PR you get <laughs> when your product is in front of 200, 300 people, you know, and your brand and, and a program and all that kind of stuff. So it makes it nice. And we've been the Ducks Unlimited rifle and shotgun of the year several times. Our actual 410 over under is featured in the DU banquets this year all across the country.
0: You know. In the uh, yeah, just because you're a big fan of that gun in particular let just tell me in in a nutshell Andy and then I'll turn you loose what do you like so much about that 410 shotgun
3: well I just got back to Nebraska where I killed another gobb- big gobbler with a, a 410 semi-auto pointer with the federal TSS number nine shot that is devastating in out of a 410 28 inch barrel with a modified choke that is the equivalent of energy of a three inch number five shell that I used to shoot religiously for turkeys. Mm -hmm. I haven't, I haven't shot a Turkey with a 12 gauge shotgun for four years now. I have shot every single one and I, I'm lucky enough to get out and about every year and kill three to six turkeys across the country with a four ten now for the last four years now. And it's just so much fun. And you giggle when you pull the trigger, it's like pop,
0: you know? Well, bring yeah. bring one for me to Iowa this fall. I can't wait to shoot it and in the meanwhile, uh we will.
3: we'll have one there because <laughs> last time we went to the hole in the wall, the beautiful facility in Iowa, we uh we had a four ten semi-auto prototype there and everybody there took a turn with it in the field shooting number sixes out of it. And you know, when those birds get up tight with dogs in front of you, you know, and they're I don't know, ten 10 yards away as they flush straight up at you and straight away a 410 is, is extremely effective Pop, ah, boom just dead now if it gets up way out in front you know 40 50 60 yards and going away right and left you know, then you got problems but but uh in close tight quarters i mean i shot limits of dub last year with a 410 wow in auto. Uh, mm-hmm. but again coming in close under a water hole it's you know it's a different story so
0: well, there's a time I've and a place less. for everyone.
3: Absolutely fun. Right. Yeah, that's that's what's really cool, and it's great. Kids gun, less recoil, mm-hmm. less muzzle jump. My my uh, my gal Debbie, my fiance, she's been shooting a twenty gauge for years at, at uh, turkeys, and the last three years, her as well. She's been shooting nothing but a four ten, and will never switch back. She just grinned when she shot her first one. Uh, because of the low recoil no muzzle jump she looked at me as soon as she pulled the trigger and the turkey dumped she looked right at me and she goes oh my gosh that's (laughs) unbelievable and she goes i was ready to shoot again if i had to like immediately you know instead of you know recovering from a shot kind of thing
0: here's a guy who could walk in the back room and take anything he wants off the shelf and he takes a 410 that's a testament <laughs> right there andy mccormick is the senior executive vp at legacy sports they provide all sorts of firearms and scopes as well learn more about them at legacy andy great to talk with you sure looking forward to seeing you we have to go all the way to iowa to see each other but i don't mind yeah. i don't <laughs> mind right. so right. and we'll talk soon thanks again for being a part of the upload nation podcast
3: and my pleasure scott take care
0: always good to talk with andy thank you for your support by the way and i will see you soon in iowa it's about time for us to say thank you to all the folks who support this program from sage and breaker to roughland kennels to pointer shotguns mid-valley clays the ringneck nation of huron south dakota And, of course, I invite you to visit FurFeathersFriends.com. If you left a rating or a review, I sure appreciate that. Thank you so much. Please do next time you're on your podcast source site. And finally, thank you to all you folks who listen loyally, introducing a friend here and there. That's how we grow one listener at a time. I hope to see you on the shooting range. I hope to see you in the training field and come on out anytime if you've got a club nearby and join up with one of their training days. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation podcast.